how much personal agency do you have over how much your work connects to your calling and how much that work contributes to your life. We don't see our magic. And it's why a lot of times we end up undervaluing what we're selling, underpricing what we're selling, because we think it's just natural. It's natural to you, but that doesn't mean it's not magical to everybody else in the world. Your purpose does not have to have the words lofty or higher in front of it. The only one who gets a vote about your purpose is you. And your purpose is your purpose, period. End of paragraph, end of chapter end of book. Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. Woo, we are in the countdown to the end of 2021. What a hell of a year it's been. And you have my commitment that we are not taking our foot off the puddle of the badassery that is the guests on this podcast, that are the guests on this podcast. And today in particular is a reminder of why I love doing this so much. Why Rebel Souls is my baby. Why I'm so passionate about bringing this to you and spending this time with you every single week because it's our opportunity. Selfishly, it's my opportunity to connect with and learn from some incredible, incredible leaders. And Laura Gassner-Odding, who we talked to today, is she's somebody who I've never met before. This conversation you're about to listen to is our very first conversation, and she blew me away. This is pure rocket fuel for living life on your terms. So let me tell you a little bit about Laura. Laura is known as Elgo to her peeps, to her inner circle. You can also find her on the gram as Elgo. She is most often described as a kick in the ass surrounded by a warm hug. I absolutely love this. And it is 100% how I experienced her in this conversation. And I'll be so curious to hear from you as well. And what I love about her is she has a hell of a resume. She is a serial entrepreneur a philanthropic activist, and a former White House political appointee. She's worked with Bill Clinton, getting the whole AmeriCorps uh, initiative off the ground way back in the day. She has started her own, she's worked at not-for-profit, started her own recruitment firm. She's done so much. And now amongst other things, she is like a, a, a renowned global speaker and an author. And her most recent book is called Limitless, 
how to ignore everybody, carve your own path, and live your best life. This sounds like rebelling for who you are, what you want, and the impact you want to have in in the world. My favorite part of that subtitle of her book, and we dig into this a lot in the conversation, is how to ignore everybody. Because the golden thread through everything she talks about is really a successful life is getting clear on what's important to you and only you. And then using that as the lens to determine what your work looks like, what your career looks like, what your non-negotiables look like, what's important to you to make time for, to, to preserve your energy for, and what can just go away. There's a profound moment that she talks about where another badass leader at the time looked at her and said, you're really not that important, Laura. And I'm just going to leave you with that little teaser because what she reminds us of is, man, we put ourselves at the center of so many things that we don't need to be at the center of. And so she is a kick in the ass and a warm hug and reminding us how to get clarity, to go from confusion to clarity on what's most important so we can live our best life. So we can feel that full body fuck yes every single day. So this conversation is a juicy journey through many topics that I know are going to land with you. We talk about undervaluing our own magic and our own experience. We talk about the excitement and the hell of rising to the occasion of our calling. And little teaser alert, that has to do with her next book that she's in the process of writing and gives us a beautiful teaser on what it is at the end. And it was the medicine I needed in this moment. So please hang in there with us until the very end. And throughout the conversation, we go through what she calls the four C's of consonants. And consonants is really an aligned life, a life on your terms. And those four C's are calling, connection, contribution, and control. And they're forever in motion in different seasons of our lives. And getting clear on these and constantly checking in really helps us to build a life, create a life that feels good to us and only us in that season of our lives. That's what helps us become limitless. I love this conversation because for all that Laura has done and for this killer resume that she brings to the table and all the insights from all of her experience, she's so humble and funny and vulnerable and self-deprecating. And we go on this wild ride with her because so much of what she's sharing with us is from her own personal experience in the world, in business, as a parent, as a leader, as an entrepreneur. And I know, I know it's going to land. So get ready. Just 
Oh, put on the shoulder harness for this wild ride and enjoy the conversation with one of my new favorite badass humans on the planet, Laura Gassner Audi. Laura, I love that you're joining me at this moment in history where this big question like, is this all there is? And what matters most in my life is at the forefront of everyone's world as we're kind of unsteadily trying to come out of this pandemic. So thank you for doing the work that you do, showing up the way you do and joining me for this conversation. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Shelly. Thank you for having me. Yeah, 100%. We are, you and I are meeting for the first time right now. We were introduced through mutual friend, uh, coach, Pam Slim, who's incredible. I love Pam's work in the world too. And I remember when she turned me on to your book, Limitless, I bought it right away. And then I was like, this is a soul sister. And I am putting her on my dream list of podcast guests. And I'm so glad we get to dive in. And I'm like, no coincidence that we're having this conversation right now. Your book came out in 2019. You and I are talking in 2021. And never has there been more more of a consonance crisis right? As you call it. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what does that even mean? And what led you to this mission, to your work in the world? Uh, So, well, first I have to just give a shout out to the great Pam Slim. I mean, all good things come from Pam Slim. So I'm so thrilled that she brought us together and I've been enjoying so much listening to your podcast since you reached out to me. So I was super excited about this conversation that we were going to have today. And Mostly I was excited about it because it is consonant with who I am, right? Like I, I get on stage and I talk about consonants. People are like, do what now? Who? What's that word? I, I don't know that word. That's but a $10 yeah, word, girlfriend. That's a $10 <laughs> word. But, but here's the thing. You do know that word because you know dissonance. You know it's opposite. You know that feeling of like cacophony and strife and like organ rejection or, you know, organ failing rejection when you're like, this just isn't right. It's dissonance. It's when nothing seems to be working and you're banging your head against the wall over and over and over. And it's just not working. It's not getting any easier. It's not working out. But consonance is the opposite. It's alignment. It's flow. It's harmony. It's it's when the very best of what you do is being called upon to solve a problem you actually care about. And you're being Mm. rewarded for solving that problem in a way that's personally financially, karmically, emotionally meaningful to you. It's when you are in that zone that people talk about. It's when you were in flow. You know those moments, Shelly, when you can like leap over tall buildings, you can see through walls, You somebody has a problem, you're like, I know exactly what needs to happen here. And you were able to help them in ways that they're like, you're magical. And you're like, no, it was just so obvious to me. Yes. And you're like, I didn't do anything because we don't see or feel our own genius, right? It's so true. Like I I make my living with words, right? You make your living with words. Mm -hmm. My husband works in the finance industry. He makes his living with numbers. And, you know, when I ran my last business, I remember I was like sit there in in front of the spreadsheet and it was so complicated. And I was trying to figure out cash flow and payroll and all these things. And I was just like, I didn't understand, like, how do I figure out what percentage of this number is that number? And I just couldn't make the math work. And I, and finally I just gave up and I would text him and I'd be like, I just like, what is the equation? I can't figure this out. And he's like, just 
send me the Google sheet. And literally I would send him the Google sheet. And before I could even like open up Facebook to scroll while I was waiting for him to get back to me, ding in my inbox, there it was. And it was like, he fixed like 17 different things and the, and it was, the answer was there. And I was like, how did you do that? That was magical. It was like, he basically like spun around three times and levitated me off the uh, off my chair. I was like, how'd you do that? He's like, it's just math. I don't understand. But then when he has to write something or give a toast or a speech, God forbid, that's like, oh, easy. I got that. No problem. And he thinks it's magical what I do. But that's the thing. Just like you said, we don't see our magic. And it's why a lot of times, especially for solopreneurs, for entrepreneurs, for people who are starting businesses, we end up undervaluing what we're selling, underpricing what we're selling, because we think it's just natural. It's natural to you, but that doesn't mean it's not magical to everybody else in the world. That's right. And we, we do, we underestimate. That's the perfect word. We underestimate and therefore undervalue because we're like, doesn't everybody do this? It's the air I breathe. It's the water I swim in. It's (laughs) just so (laughs) obvious. But what happens is when we're kids, when we're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, somebody says, pick a major, pick a job, pick a trade, pick a college. And we go, okay. And we pick something because it's what we see on TV. It's what we see on social media. It's what people are telling us are the quote unquote worthy careers, right? And so we do that because it feels like that's what we're supposed to do. And then we get there and we look around and we're like, is this, is this it? Yeah. Is this all there is? Was this all I was meant for? Is this all my life's going to be? Because when we're 15, 16, 17 years old, we have a lot of inputs, but what we don't have is a frontal lobe, like the actual part of your brain that dictates good, logical, sound decision-making. We don't have that. So we're asked to make a decision that's going to impact the very rest of our lives when we literally do not have the capacity to make a good one. And so there we are, and we're living somebody else's life. We're living somebody else's direction, somebody else's plan. and then. Of course, it's not feeling natural to us. Of course, we're in this position where it seems like everybody else is doing things that work for them, but like we're still banging our head against the table. Oh my God. And I was just raising my hand because the thing you may have heard me say this on the podcast at times, I'm like, I am a product of living my dad's dream. <laughs> this is what I talk about. So when I, when you said that in the book, I was like, oh, amen, sister. And I'm right here. And the more of us who say this out loud and go, wow, I call it being success empty instead of successful. I was ticking all the boxes that society, my parents, tradition, you know, everybody else but me said was what success looks like. And I'm like, no, wait, success is a feeling. Success isn't ticking boxes. And you say in your subtitle, I love it, how to ignore everybody. How to ignore everybody. I was like, yes, sister. Talk a little bit about that because how do you help people find like, what does it mean to me? Because it's deeply personal. And you're like, no one, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It should only matter to you. And yet we're not really taught how to do that. This isn't part of schooling. It is not part of schooling and we're not taught how to do it. And in fact, there's even a, a, a worse problem than the fact that we don't know what success looks like for us is that we change every seven to 10 years and the world around us changes every seven to 10 years. You know, when my book first came out, I did something like 150 podcasts and I used to get this question all the time, which was the dumbest question ever, which was what advice would you give your 22 year old self? And I was like, 
Wah, okay. Wah. <laughs> For context, I'm 50. Okay. So I was like, my 22 year old self who is using her mobile phone to listen to a podcast that was recorded over the internet. None of those things existed when I was 22. So even if I could give my 22-year-old self advice so that my 22-year-old self knew what the hell she was doing, the world around us changes so much that we still have to change. So it doesn't even matter if we know. So here's what happens. When we get that guidance counselor or that career counselor or that teacher or that parent or whoever who says, pick a major, pick a job, pick a career, pick a trade, and we say, okay, what they usually do is they give us a list. And that list has some items on it. And there are things like, what's the mission of the organization? How prestigious will it look on your resume? Um, How many, like, what are the skills you're going to learn? Are you inspired by the leader? Um, What's the scale of impact that you're going to make? Some things like geography, you know, what's the the, the commute? What's that going to be like? What are the benefits? How much money will you earn? And we say, okay, that's the list of what makes a good job good. But nobody sits us down and says, now take that list and prioritize it for what matters to you. Yes. Personalize it. Right. Right. So we get, here's what makes a good job good, but we never get, here's what makes a good job good for you. Mm -hmm. So when I was 22 years old, dropping out of law school um, and joining a presidential campaign, I didn't care how much money I made. I was paid in all the idealism and ramen soup I could eat. And I was happy as a clam. I was getting on campaign buses. I was driving all over the country. I was sleeping on cold high school gymnasium floors. And I was inspired till like the, the, to the end of days by this candidate who talked about community service in exchange for college tuition. And I was like, yes, that needs to happen. And my entire path changed from how can I help How do I go to law school? How do I run for office? How do I become a senator to how do we get this guy in office so that he can make this plan a reality for so many people? This guy was Bill Clinton, right? This guy was Bill Clinton. (laughs) And the the program. uh, I love it. This guy. I'm like, oh, no, this guy will be named. Right. Exactly. This is kind of a big deal, Laura. (laughs) It was kind of a big deal. And what was was a bigger deal is that the program that we helped complete Uh, that we helped put in uh, place was AmeriCorps. And to this date, over a million young people have served their communities in exchange, gotten an opportunity to go to college. So my my entire life changed frankly, because I was dating a guy that I never should have been dating because I was in law school where I didn't want to be because I was living my mother's dreams the law school, not the guy part of it. And he, um, he was like, I just, you know, I gotta, I gotta drive by this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. I was like, governor who from where Arkansas, not a chance in hell. Like George HW Bush had just one desert storm and he had a 91% approval rating. Like nobody in a million years thought Bill Clinton was going to win or even be a contender. And so, but I, this guy gave me a ride home from campus. We stopped um, at this campaign office. Kids, this is where you used to get information before the internet. Because you'd actually have to like, go to a strip mall in some podunk town and get like paper that actually said the person's, you know, stances. So there we are. 
uh, we're standing in the middle of this campaign office. It's like this little strip mall office and this teeny black and white TV in the corner has then brown haired Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, talking about this idea. And I was like, oh, my God, yes. Firing on all cylinders. I mean, this is like pause on that for just a second, because we forget again, it goes back to successful is a feeling. It's not an idea in your head. What you just described is you had like the full body. Fuck. Yes. There's yes. something going on here yes. that we often forget about when we talk about personalizing the definition of success. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had that moment where everything I had thought I was supposed to be doing up until that very moment standing there was like, oh, wait a minute. And it's funny. I actually ended up giving a TEDx talk about this where I grew up listening to the news and thinking, how can I help? How do I help? How do I be of service? There's, you know, all sorts of horrible things happening in the world. When I was a child, it was like the Iran hostage crisis and famine in Ethiopia and the AIDS crisis. And all we would think is, how can I help? And then I was standing there in this office and all of a sudden it was like, that needs to happen. This guy needs to be put in office with the right people in the right place. And then let's create the solution from there. And it really, it was a moment that really turned everything that I had thought, you know, up until then I was like, oh, wait a minute. there's a different way to do this. And so I dropped out of law school. I joined the campaign and and, and, and I went and I ended up in the White House, um, which was crazy and amazing. 22 years old, there I was. And so, but here's where the story gets interesting. Four years after being there, uh, I wanted to get back on the campaign trail. And so I said to my then boss, you know, I'm looking forward, I want to get back on the campaign trail. And he said, well, you know, you're 25 now. And so you're kind of too old to get back on the campaign bus. I love that we're sitting here at 50 and 51. You and I are basically the same age yeah. going, wait, what? Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And he goes, and you're kind of too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So why don't you go talk to my friend, Arnie Miller? He'll find you a job in the nonprofit sector. Uh, he runs the biggest search firm in the country that does exclusively nonprofit mission-driven work. And then you'll come back and do something big on Al Gore's campaign. And I was like, okay, sounds great. And I went to go talk to Arnie. And within five minutes of sitting down with Arnie, I realized that his office was in Boston. Now, the new guy that I was dating, who was a much better guy <laughs> than the guy I was dating in law school, uh, he was about to go get a PhD either at Harvard or MIT. And I was like, well, that's in Boston. His office is in Boston. I think this guy's the one. Hey, Arnie, I should just come work for you. And he's like, you should come work for me. And I was like, okay, tell me what you do. And so I became a headhunter. Why? I don't know. I had no ostensible skills. I had a Rolodex that could choke a horse coming out of the White yeah. House. That's pretty good. Of course Rolodex. you did. Might as well figure out how to get paid to like introduce some of the people in my Rolodex to some of the other people in my Rolodex. But again, that was not the like, here's what makes a good job good. What made a good job good for me was putting location at the top of the list and putting, you know, the work that I was doing, you know, underneath it and not worrying about the money necessarily first and foremost, right? So like at every age and at every life stage, we take that little list of those motivating factors and we kind of move them around. And what happened is as I became a headhunter, I realized that that didn't just apply to me, it applied to all the candidates that I was recruiting for jobs as well. 
And I thought that was the most interesting thing of all, because I would come to them asking them to change their lives, right? To turn their lives upside down, to move across country, to take a new job, to move their families across country. And I was coming at them with job descriptions and a checklist of these motivating factors, the same checklist that we all have, but I didn't think about how to make it actually meaningful and personal to them. And that's where consonance and help comes in. Them. I love that. I love that. And I want to dig into how you define consonance because yeah. it really resonated with me. And I know it will with the Rebel Souls community because it's so aligned, as you and I were talking about, with my work in the world and my message. And I love this idea that you can help people think through this in a really simple way because we're, again, it goes back to, we're not taught how to think about this on our terms. I always say like, my mission is to help others rewrite the script of success yes. in a way that resonates with their soul and yes. their truth. And the way you define consonants, like let's break it down. Talk us through those steps because I also love that you think it's not a constant. And let's be honest, nothing in life is a constant. Right. So I love that you're so honest about like, yeah, different ages and stages, this stuff is going to move around. So let's check in and be honest with ourselves about what do we need in this moment or in this phase? Yeah, absolutely. So consonance is made up of four factors. Uh, and I'm a self-help personal development person. So they all start with C. <laughs> so the <laughs> consonance is made up of four factors that get you from confusion to clarity. Uh, it's number one uh, is, is calling. What do you want to do in the world? What is your calling? What is that gravitational force that wakes you up every morning and says, hell yeah, that full body, fuck yeah, this is the thing mm -hmm. I want to do. It might be a business that you want to build. It might be a bottom line you want to grow. It might be a leader who inspires you to serve. It might be a cause that you want to, to a problem, a societal problem that, that you want to fix. It could be a family that you want to nurture, right? It could be anything, but it is the thing that you care about today. Yeah. I love that you say that too, because I think, and I would imagine you've gotten this question slash pushback from people. Like when you say calling and purpose, like these words make a lot of us like want to curl up in the fetal position yes. under our desk, right? Yes. And so, you really, yep. really distill it down into, no, it's actually what matters to you today. I love that you put yes. family in there. Yes. And I can tell you because I did that executive search work for five years for Arnie Miller till I had the moment of rage when I decided to go off on my own, start my own firm and run that for 15 years. So I spent 20 years doing executive search specifically for nonprofits, universities, foundations, research institutions, advocacy organizations. So like white hat mission driven. And I can say this as an unimpeachable source, your purpose does not have to have the words lofty or higher in front of it to be your purpose. It just has to be your purpose. If your purpose is to cure cancer, have at it, that's awesome. If your purpose is to build a business and have financial flexibility and freedom so that your children can make different decisions than you had to make because of finances and debt and constraints, have at it. If your purpose is to buy a beach house and a Maserati, that's awesome too. The only one who gets a vote about your purpose is you. And the problem is, is that we spent all of our lives literally like calligraphing invitations to give voices to people or to give the votes to people in our lives who shouldn't even have voices. Yes. And sometimes that's 
the, you know, the, 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 your father, right. You're living your father's dream. Sometimes it's a teacher. Sometimes it's the Kardashians. Sometimes it's the voice in your own head. That's like, mm, I don't know, Shelly, are you sure? Is this really matter? I'm not, you know, sometimes it's like the specter of the like high school, you know, cheerleading captain who was like, and always giving you the side eye. It doesn't matter. Like we literally calligraphy invitations to people in our lives who should not have voices, let alone votes. And so we have to stop doing that. Your purpose is your purpose, period. Mm. End of paragraph, end of chapter, end of book. Boom. I love it. And it only matters to you. And it's whatever feels right in this moment. The other thing that just takes the overwhelm out of it for me as I listen to you is that it's in this moment. We don't have to define the rest of our lives. And I think we often get caught up in like, oh my God, oh my God, like 10 years from now or 15 years from now. I'm like, no, I don't even let myself go there. It's like live for today, what feels right and and trust that that's going to be a stepping stone for what whatever's to come. Yeah. And this isn't like that, like, you know, nonsense bullshit, like, do you No, like right. we all have, look we all have the realities of economics. We've got rent, we've got mortgage, we've got whatever debt, we've got like bills to pay. Like that's important. But you know, uh, my eldest child just left for college a few weeks ago and I have been working my ass off on my next book. Like I have been in the pain cave, the writing pain cave for the next book. And also Around the middle of July, I was like, screw this. I am not going to sit on my deathbed and go, God, I really wish I had that book out six weeks sooner. I really wish I had that book out three months sooner. I'm not. I'm going to say, boy, I really wish I would have spent those last six or eight weeks when my son is home, just being around, just being around when he's around. So I looked at my my spreadsheet, which I now can handle without my husband's help. But I looked at my spreadsheet and I said, what is the minimum viable amount of work that I need to do to bring in the income that I need to bring in and to keep my relationships warm for what I want to do when I ramp back up in the fall? And everything that did not make that list, I just let them know. I was taking, you know, a little bit of, I was taking a little time this summer. I was, you know, taking care of, I had a little health challenges. So I was able to easily blame it on that. So I'm just taking a little bit of recovery time. I'll be back on September 1. And you know what? Nobody cared. You know why? Because none of us are all that important. No, like it's not like people are setting their clock to whether or not we set, we show up unless they are. And for those people, you got to double the hell down. But for everyone else, like, where am I that important? I wasn't that important to clients who weren't going to make decisions about their spring events till October. Yeah. But I was that important to my son who was like maybe quietly on the down low, wigging out a little bit about school and just every once in a while I wanted to talk about it. And so like, you know, you kind of just have to be around when they're ready to talk. So I just allow myself to be around. So for me, my calling is to help get people unstuck, get them out of their own way so that they can live their very best life. But for the last six weeks, my calling was being a mom, was just being home, was just being around with no agenda at all. Yeah. I love this idea of checking in more frequently, like monthly check-ins. It's really asking yourself the question, like, what do I need in this moment? What feels most important to me? Because urgency can dictate our lives if we let it. And usually it is, right? It usually it's artificial. It's somebody's arbitrary bullshit deadline. It's whatever. Somebody else's agenda will run our lives unless we choose to really check in on the important stuff like you just said. Yeah, so that brings us to the second piece of content, which is connection, right? Connection. Connection answers the question, does the stuff I'm doing every day, all day, every day, in and out, does what I'm doing actually get me closer to serving that calling 
or take me farther from serving that calling. So if you look at your inbox, your to-do list, your calendar, your voicemails, you look at all the things, the people that are asking for your time, and you say, are these things literally connected to my calling? Now, for some of us, it's very clear whether it's connected to your calling or not. For, for others, maybe it's a little harder and you might not, it's not that your, your work is not in line with your calling. You just don't necessarily have that insight. And so for some people, you need to switch and make sure you're using your time well. But for others, sometimes it's just having those conversations with your colleagues, with your boss, uh, with your supervisor, just to understand what it is you're actually doing and why. But a lot of, you know, look, we get very, very busy. And the tyranny of the urgent often distracts us from what really matters. Like think about how much time you spend in your inbox. I think your inbox, your inbox is everybody else's to-do list, right? Amen, sister, amen. It's not yours. So I started checking my email twice a day. I checked my email first thing in the morning and I checked my email around three o'clock in the afternoon. And I don't look at it other than that. Like anybody who really needs you, they're going to text you, right? They're going to find you. They're going to call you. So we spent all this time, we were wasting our time and we get so busy and we get distracted because we think that busy equals impact. Yeah. When in fact, it just equals busy. Like we're, I would argue that we're not exhausted from doing too much. We're exhausted from doing too much of what matters to other people and not enough of what matters to us. Oh, amen. And I've heard you talk about this concept and I'm a huge fan of saying yes more often to what's really important to you because it makes the nose really easy. You don't have the space, right? Can you talk about that a little? I don't know where that fits in in your C's, but I'm like, yes, yes, more of that in the world, please. Yes. So when my kids were like seven and nine, um, I, I, my business was nine years old. I'd started when my, my eldest was six weeks old. So they're seven and nine and I'm having lunch with a woman who, um, to quote her in her amazing Brooklyn accent, you know, would say, I'm kind of a big deal, right? Well, that wasn't a very good Brooklyn accent, but she was like, she was kind of a big deal. And at a certain point in her life, she was like, I was kind of a big deal. So I had rules. I had certain rules. Like I would never, she was the CEO of a major corporation, which she then sold to IBM for like a bajillion dollars. And she was like, rule number one, I never went anywhere that I could not take a direct flight. Because if I had to take two flights, it meant it was probably too small of a media market for me to actually oh. show up. I should send my COO, I should send my CMO, I should send my CFO. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And at the time I was struggling with whether or not I said yes to a speaking engagement at Cornell. Cornell, amazing, incredible, not very easy to get to. And I was like, yeah. is that worth my time, right? So it became an easy no. I sent my vice president, she crushed it. Everybody was happy, it was fantastic. Um, that was her first rule. Her second rule was she was always home for dinner at 6 p.m. She's like, I might've gone back to work after, but I was always home for dinner. Like I just, mm. that's what I wanna do. I held my time. And she said her third rule was that she did one thing at a time. Either she was at work, or she was at home, but she was never doing both. And so she had these rules about whether or not it made sense, what she said yes to, what she said no to. And so I spent some time thinking about that because I said, well, yeah, but that was before. And now I've got this thing called a cell phone, which means I can be, and I think it was so long ago that I think I said I had like, I picked up my palm trio and I was like, look, I've yeah. got this trio. I said, so I can be on the I can be on the playground, but also be with my clients. And she's like, yeah, you're not with either of them, if that's the case. And she said, tell me about your day. Like, she's like, you've got a happy marriage. You've got a healthy, um, 
half the kids, you've got a successful business. What's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I yell at my kids too much. Like it's just stressful. And she's like, okay, you're trying to be all things to all people. And the truth is you're just not that important. And I was like, what? Got punch. What? Like, I am not that important. How could you say that? Like at the time I'm building my business, I'm building my family, I'm building my community ties. I'm serving on boards. I sure felt really important. And she was like, you're just not that important. She's like, you need to figure out where you are that important. Double the hell down there and say no to everything else. And so I thought about my own rules and here's what I came up. I came up with four rules. The first one, incredibly selfish and Machiavellian, but you got to start somewhere and all charity begins at home, right? So number one, Will this thing help me? Do I see myself on the other side of this email, this committee membership, this chair of the bake sale, like whatever the ask is, the can I pick your brain calls? Do I see myself on the other side of this thing being closer to the calling, to the solution, to the the, the work that I want to do, the reward I'm looking for or not? And if the answer is yes, it's an easy yes. If the answer is no, then I got to do some thinking. Number two, um, So will it help me? Number two, will it help someone else? If it's not going to help me, but it's so clearly going to help someone else and it's easy. Yes. Right. The, the, the universe pays you back in karma all day long. So if I can help someone else and it's not going to take a ton of time for me and in the process, I'm probably going to learn new skills. I might meet some new people. I might go to an interesting event. Why not? You never know what's going to happen. Play the long game there. Um, Number three, will it cause me joy? So if it's not going to help me, but it's not going to help someone else, but it's going to be really fucking fun. Yeah. Easy. No brainer. I'm going to do it because, you know, as Adam Grant says, he just said in his, in his recent Ted talk about languishing, he used to think of play as the reward for the to-do list. And now he puts play on the to-do list, right? Like it's part of who we are. So will it help me? Will it help someone else? Will it cause me joy? And then the last question, this sort of goes back to what I was talking about earlier is, is there somebody better suited to do this? And a lot of times, take the bake sale, for example, you're running out of school at the end of the day, you've got like screaming kids in hand and you're trying to like race home before the next conference call. And, you know, happy Patty comes running over and she's like, hey, uh, the, the, the chair of the bake sale just dropped out. Would you do it for us? It's tomorrow. And you think to yourself, well, I have 18 billion things to do and there's no friggin' way I'm gonna be able to do this. But I did have on my list that I wanted to spend more time with my kids. Quality time is really important. Mm-hmm. And I'm told that all the time. So, okay, I guess I'll do it. And then what happens is you go home, you're so stressed out about everything. You end up, um, you know, making a mess of your kitchen. You make crappy cookies that don't <laughs> taste very good because you don't have a lot of experience baking stuff. And not only that, you're not even spending time with your kids because your kids are busy doing their homework. And all they're seeing is that you're getting angry about doing something for their school. So what happened at the end of the day, you, you actually got further away from <laughs> what you wanted to do. Yeah. And if you just stood for a second and you said, you know, actually I can't do it, but I happen to know that this other mom or that other dad or that grandma or whoever, they love baking. And I know that they're taking a sabbatical from work right now. So they're probably the right person to ask. Thank you so much. I can't wait to buy all the great stuff that they provide tomorrow. Mm. And then you leave, right? You say no. So will it cause you, uh, will, will it help you? Will it help someone else? Uh, will it cause you joy? And better yet, is there somebody who was better suited than you to do it? Yes, I love those. Those are great guardrails because they help slow us down. So one of the things that I've been taught and I've I've been practicing because that's the best we can do, right? We practice every day. We build these muscles. 
for the past five years is this idea of slowing down and taking a beat. So instead of letting my people pleaser come to the table and be like, oh, of course I want to help you and I want to do the thing and I want to be liked and I don't want to feel the guilt and all the things that you just described. You want four cookies. I can make six kinds of cookies. Exactly. And yes, I've never made a fucking cookie in my life, but I'm going to figure it out, right? Because I'm going to overachieve at everything that I try to do. So I love that those questions also slow us down. They remind us to take a breath, take a beat, check in on those questions. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's half the battle. At least that's been my experience. Yes. And it helps you say yes better. After I got that advice, but you're just not that important. I came home and I was like, all right, I need to figure this out. And I started looking up like, you know, I, I tried to look up, how do you say no? And all I could find was why you should say no. More quality time, <clears throat> better bubble baths, like all this nonsense. Yeah. But there yeah. was nothing about, and you know, there was stuff about how to say no, you know, demure, deflect, don't return emails, ghost people. But there was nothing about um, the way that you act like a strategy about how do you make decisions. Yeah. And so I decided instead of learning how to say no, I just figured out how to say yes better. I'd figure out what I should say yes to. And then once you say yes to the things that make sense, as you said, there's not a lot of space in your calendar for the things that don't. So now when somebody calls me about something that doesn't necessarily really make sense for me, one of those, can I prick your brain calls? Yeah. When you know that they've emailed like 12 other people, the same exact thing. What I do is I will respond to them and I'll say, hey, I would love to talk. Sounds like a really interesting question. I'm kind of busy for the next two weeks. Why don't you reach back out to me in two weeks? If it's still, you know, an urgent matter. And obviously, like if it's somebody, like if you sent somebody to me and I was doing you a favor, of course, I would take the call, you know, immediately. Or if it was somebody that I knew or was something that was quick, I, I could do it. But if it's one of those just like general, you know, they haven't done a ton of thinking about it, you know, or maybe I'll like give them a question. Like I had somebody reach out to me uh, yesterday and she was asking me if I had any advice about a potential internship for her 16 year old daughter who was interested in nonprofits. And I was like, uh, no, like I, 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 so just, so I wrote back to her and I said, Hey, I said, I'm kind of crazy. I just got, you know, my eldest kid off to college. My youngest one is starting school tomorrow. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, got a couple of things going on the next couple of weeks. Why don't you sit down with your daughter figure out which specific kinds of missions are interesting to her or what she'd like to learn and then come back to me and we'll have a more specific question. So I sort of, I think what happens is a lot of time we take on the burden of the homework without giving people. So I'll either push them away for a couple of weeks. I'll give them specific uh, uh, questions to answer. So they have to actually do some homework. And a lot of times if people are just tire kicking, that's too hard for them. And they disappear. They're not going to come back. They won't come back. Or my favorite thing that I do, because I'm I'm an athlete, is I ask people if they would be willing, rather than eat meet and eat, I ask them if they're willing to meet and move. So I'll say, hey, would love to talk to you. I'm pretty crazy for the next month. But if you want to talk sooner, I'm at the Harvard Stadium every, you know, Thursday at 6 a.m. Or I go for a run on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Or, you know, if you, you know, we could take a you know walk and talk during lunch. So whatever, all fitness levels. And I had this one woman who's like, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I don't know if I could carry on a conversation. I'm like, well, good news is you're coming to me for advice. So I'll be doing most of the talking. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I can. Exactly. So and right. I can do it. Exactly. And, I can. and it's really interesting. So what I'll say to people is I'm so crazy for the next month, but if you want to meet sooner, I happen to be doing these things. I'll be there. You're welcome to join me. Yes. And it's kind of amazing how many people will join me. It's kind of great. 
I love this idea. It just came up. I, I um, facilitate or guide a group of C-suite women. And we were just having this conversation that sometimes it's really hard to prioritize ourselves, yes. to make that time, to be moving in the morning or early in our day when our motivation tends to be the highest. Yes. And I told them about my own practice of walk and talks. Yes. And so whether it's in person or whether you're in my earbuds, I'm like, I will not sit with you on a Zoom call. This is my time. But yes. if you want to walk and talk, next to me on the trail or in my ears as you are also walking and we have this for 30 minutes. I love it. I'm all in. So I've created these walk and talk slots on my calendar. So it's great. I've never had this conversation with somebody else. I literally just had it with these women. And now you're saying it and I'm like, let's make this a thing. Yeah, I do. I do. I either do. I love the walk and talk. I do the meet and move. I also will say, and if you can't do that, I also make special exceptions once a week, I'll do a half hour conversation to people who donate to one of these four charities. And I, and, and, and they're not political. They're not, you know, third rail issues. They're organizations I've been involved in for decades. They're close to my heart. And I say, you know, a donation of any amount. I've had people give $5. I've had people give $500. Um, But it just tells me that they take my advice seriously enough that I'm not one of 30 people they've reached out to. And it's not this blanket thing. Most of the time when I send people away, they, 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 they either don't come back or they'll come back to me in a couple of weeks or I'll follow up with them in a couple of weeks. And they'll say, no problem. I actually got my, my, my question answered by so-and-so again, right. That's the number four in the four questions. Is there somebody better suited to handle this? So I think it's, we, we are such pleasers as women. It's just part of who we are. And I think we, people steal our time all the time. We let them, we're like, we're away. We ate in a bet. We ate in a bet the robbery of our own time. And then we're like, why am I so tired? Yeah, this just came up yesterday in a conversation. We teach people how to treat us. Uh-huh, so, 100%. so let's start teaching them differently and upholding those boundaries and saying when we're available and for what we're available. And like you just took us through, what does that look like? You've put very specific criteria around what it looks like to spend time with you. And yes. it's criteria that serves you as well. Yes. How powerful is that? Yes. I don't think we think about it in those terms often enough. We don't, we don't. And and I think a lot of times we look at our calendar and we see blank space and we think free. I'm free because my calendar's blank. No, that's when you think like, you know, people are always like, I don't, I get my best ideas in the shower. I get my best ideas when I'm out running. I get my best ideas, you know, first thing in the morning. It's like, no, you get your best ideas during the times that you allow your brain to think and process and alchemize all the inputs yes. that you're getting. So that blank space on your calendar, that's not space where you have nothing to do. That's space where you could be thinking right? And like, or playing, like Adam Grant says, right? Like play also like fires up the creative neurons. It allows, there was a brilliant Ted talk about having idea sex, right? It allows all these beautiful, like, you know, inputs that we get to start mixing and mashing and new stuff comes out. And that can't happen if we're wall to wall in meetings, on conference calls, on Zooms, all the things. So I love that you brought that up because I'm so passionate about building those into our calendars and have like white space should be celebrated. 
white space should be, it should, it, it should be required. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Better said. Absolutely. Well, and so that brings us to the third C, which yeah. is contribution. So if connection is all about the work, does this work connect to my calling? Contribution is really all about you. Does this mm. work contribute to the way I want to live my life? Does it give me the lifestyle that I'm looking for? Does it, you know, in terms of how much it's paying you, does it give me the flexibility that I want in order to pick up side hobbies or side hustles? Um, is it allowing me to manifest my values on a daily basis? Is it contributing to the career trajectory that I'd like? You know, I had a, a woman who worked for me at my old firm who was a senior associate and she was so good at the work. And I was like, come on, I want to promote you. We got to make you a vice president. It's going to be awesome. And she was like, no, I just had a kid. I'm going to have another one. I want to wait till they're both in school. That, then I can, because the vice president job required some travel because then I'll be able to travel again. She's like, but right now I want to be an expert in my position. And I want to spend yeah. my time making sure that I'm there for my family that I'm growing. And I was like, what? How could you, what, 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 what is wrong with you? And then I was like, oh, nothing's wrong with her. What's wrong with me? <laughs> What's wrong with me? That it, I had this idea that bigger, better, faster, more lean yeah. in, as Sheryl Sandberg told us all to do, was the only definition of success. And what I realized was the way that this work contributed to the life that she wanted to live was that she was doing this great work on behalf of mission-driven organizations. So it comported with the value she wanted to manifest every single day. And also it was a work from home job. We were, we were remote workers before it was COVID cool. This was like 15 years ago. Um, and it allowed her to be there for school drop-off, for school pickup. It allowed her to be yeah. flexible on sick days and snow days and all those things. And it allowed her to make enough money. She probably could have made more money as a vice president, but she made enough money, right? There's the like, there's the need to make number and then there's the yeah. want to make number. And in between the need to make number, pay your mortgage, pay your bills, pay your, your rent, and the want to make number, do you stay at the Holiday Inn or the Four Seasons, right? Do you drive a Hyundai or a BMW? In between those two, or how you want to spend your time. And she decided she wanted to be closer to the need to make number and spend her time doing things that were not bringing in income, but were bringing in love. And so that's where contribution really comes into, into play. And that's really about how we get to decide what's on our calendar. I feel like this particular one is really at the forefront right now. I mean, with so many people having evacuated cities and they're now living the lives they want, moving to the mountains, moving to the ocean, moving to rural places, creating the life they've always dreamed of and thought maybe they couldn't have because remote work wasn't a thing for most people. It's really beautiful to think about that because we, again, haven't been taught to think in terms of what lifestyle do I really want to live? What do I want just the essence of my day-to-day -to, -day to look like and feel like? And that's what you're talking about. That's how you're defining contribution as I'm hearing it. Absolutely. And people used to always say to me like, well, if you don't see your employees every single day, I've had 35 staff literally all over the world from Seattle to Siberia and everywhere in between. And they were like, if you don't see your employees every day, how do you how do you judge the quality of their work? And I was like, by the quality of their work. Amen. <laughs> I mean, either you got the work done or you didn't. Either you built a candidate pool or you didn't. Either you wrote a good position description that the client liked or you didn't. Either you did a deep and thorough reference check or you didn't. Like it just, the work got done and it got done well or it didn't. We had very specific, very well-defined, very detail-oriented 
uh, standards of quality that everybody had that we did constant trainings on. We had a huge amount of structure. Um, I didn't care if the work got done at two in the morning or two in the afternoon. It didn't matter to me. It was client-focused work. So as long as people were available to produce for the client, to keep the client happy, that was great. So, you know, it, but, but that was a very specific kind of business that I was running because at the time, that's what I wanted in my life. I, I started that firm because I wanted to maximize personal freedom and flexibility, and I wanted to maximize impact in the world. I think the other thing you get to maximize as an entrepreneur is profit, right? You get to choose one of the three, freedom and flexibility, um, impact, and profit. And I think you get to choose two of the three to make decisions around. And so we picked the first two, but here's the, the, the happy ending of the story is that if you, if you fire hard on the two that you're choosing, the third one comes eventually in the Mm -hmm. end, I ended up making more money than I would have if I stayed at the big firm. I sold the firm to the women who helped me found it and made more money than I would have if I sold it to a bigger firm. Like all the things that we did, we did for very specific reasons, because that's how I wanted to create contribution in my own life from the work that I've been doing. I love it. I always say like right now in the work that I do in the business that I run, I say mission over money because I know if I am showing up, like how you define consonants, like what I'm doing is aligned with who I am in the world, the rest will follow. You know, it's so funny because when it came time to sell the firm and I tell the story in Limitless, I, um, I, I, you know, any entrepreneur entrepreneur knows that you know, in the first year or two of running a business, sometimes in the first four or five years of running a business, you're not making a lot of money, right? You're like making enough money, nope. you're figuring it out, you're making a ton of mistakes, um, but you're not maximizing the amount of money that you can make because you're making your mistakes cost a lot of money, it turns out. So, so there were a lot of times where I chose to hire staff and not pay myself enough so I could pay them because I wanted to grow and things that you're doing or you do yeah. like, uh, you know, marketing revamping or like anything that building a website database, all the things that you have to do. And you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll earn less money because I want to keep these really quality people. And then when it came time for me to sell the business, I, I had been running it for 10 years and I had come to a realization that it was, I was done. I sort of hadn't learned anything new in a while and I wanted to do something else. And I realized that in five years, I'd be 45. The business would be 15 years old. I will have been doing executive search for 20 years. It seemed like good numbers, good, like CODA type numbers. Yeah. So I turned to my business partner who came on a few years into the business and I was like, all right, it's time for me to go. I need an exit plan. I think it's going to take some time. And it took five years for this to happen. It was a very long and drawn out experience that got very emotional on all sides by the end of it. And it got emotional because A, they were really scared. She's the founder. When she's leaving, what's going to happen? Will our firm still exist? Do people think the firm is her and she's the firm? Like what's going to happen? And I got emotional because I got really upset. I got my panties in a bunch about my ego. Like we did a valuation. I handed the valuation to you know the senior team and they were like, well, we're not going to pay you that. And I was like, what do you mean you're not going to pay me that? That's what the firm's worth. Like I helped build this firm. I'm literally handing to you your careers. Like, here you go. Good luck. You're welcome. And they were like, we're not going to pay you that. We could just close and start again and not worry about it. And I got so wrapped up in wanting to maximize the value, the profit from the firm, because I felt like that was a reflection of my value in the universe. And then I, I, was, I was talking to my husband about it, who, again, is the one who always talks sensitive to me about these things. And he was like, look, Laura, you never ran the firm to maximize profitability. The reason that the sale is not working is that you're selling it to maximize profitability. He's like, you, 
everything you've ever created still exists. You create institutions and not cathedrals. That's who you are. You create things that maximize impact in the world and maximize your own flexibility to continue to grow and change and learn and do new things. What if you sold it with those two things in mind? And so I went back to my business partner. And I was like, all right, here's a new idea. I'm going to sell you the firm for a dollar plus a percentage of revenue for the next five years. Because as a founder, I can't really cast a shadow back any further than that. Like after five years, I can't, can't really put my fingers on their success. But send you the firm for a dollar plus a percentage of revenue for the next five years, as long as you show even a penny's worth of profit. And you are going to show me quarterly finances and you're going to have highlighted in red anything where like you're spending 10% more, or 10% less, whatever, just to like, we're all honest, we all skin in the yeah. game. And I'm going to recommend you to everybody because then I get to make more money because it's more of a percentage and you get to, you know, I know you're being honest because you're standing, showing me all the stuff. So you're not going to like hide away, squirrel away money, all of that. And in the end, Shelly, I actually made more money yes. by like 50% than if I had sold it to them for the valuation in the first place. Because at the end of the day, I had to figure out what was consonant with who I was and yeah. why I did the work I did and what was important to me. And it, when I sold it for those same reasons, using that same rubric, it all worked out. The, the reason that we have so much trouble and that things are so hard is that we're told if you're going to sell your business, you got to maximize the money you make from it. And it's like, well, yeah. But I I maximized the money I made from it because I maximized the other things that are more important to me first. Yes. Yeah. What a beautiful reminder. And I have to say, I told you this off camera, but I love that your husband it plays the role in your life of like grounding you in your values yes. and in your value. I joke right. around that uh, that I'm the helium in his balloon. I'm the one who has all these like crazy harebrained ideas and let's do this, let's do that. And I like lift him off the ground and he's the cement in my shoes. But I say that in like the most loving way possible because yes. he keeps me out of so much danger by like, yeah. you know, not consenting to me when I'm like, yeah, but yeah, but and he's like, um, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and you just quickly, because I do want, I, I want to get to the fourth C yes. that'll bring us home. But I, I feel called to, to, to say, to tell everybody who's listening, the story that you put in the book about the first time someone offered you an absurd amount of money for a keynote speech and you were sharing it with your husband. You're like, holy shit, for like 40 minutes of work, they're going to pay me some ridiculous amount of money. And remind us all what he said to you, because we all need this lesson. Okay. So um, one of the things I talk about, this is a good place to talk about it, because I talk about it a lot in terms of contribution, because I think women in particular have a very hard time with this question of contribution, the part of the like, is it going to pay me to have the kind of lifestyle that I want? Because am I asking too much? Is it too, am I, is my lifestyle too big? Are my wants too big? Am I being too ambitious, right? Like ambition is this mm. dirty word. Like nobody ever says, oh, he's so ambitious. No, they're like, he's driven with women. It's like, yeah, but she's so like, I want a woman in power, but not that woman, right? She's too ambitious, yeah. right? Yeah. She's too oh, ambitious. Yeah. Like, we Playing hear that too all the big. time. It's scary. It's yes. scary. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. And it's really interesting. Um, again, not trying to get political here, but if you look at the poll numbers for Hillary Clinton, people loved her when she was secretary of state. People loved her when she was first lady, right? They love her when she's in a position. But when she yeah. was running for president, they hated her, right? Yeah. It's like when she was in a position 
Women in positions, great. Women in power, great. Women who want power, not great. People don't like them, right? It brings out the she's too ambitious thing. So what I say to women is, listen, it's not a question of whether or not you're ambitious. The question is, would having more money, more time, more resources, more leverage, more power, more platform, more network, more whatever, allow you to show up better for the people that you love and the causes you hold dear? And the answer is, of course, yes, right? So it's not that you're being too ambitious to want these things. It's not your ambition. It's your responsibility. And women are like, oh, okay, it's my responsibility to make more money and to get what I deserve and demand, right? If I waited around in life for all I deserved, I would never oh. get what I demanded, okay? Like you and I probably wouldn't demand. be having this conversation we today if we hadn't demanded. So women, if you're listening, stop waiting around for what you deserve, go out and demand, get what you demand because that's how you get it. So I want you to feel more comfortable with responsibility rather than ambition. So nobody ever says she's too responsible, right? (laughs) Right? So you can just take that responsibility. So I came home one day and I I got off the plane from um, being uh, in, in, uh, in Idaho of all places for a speech. And I said to my husband, like, I just, I just can't believe this is a job. Like, this is a job. Like I get paid to get on a plane, travel somewhere, go give a 45 minute speech at the end of which somebody hands me a check and I fly home. I just, it's embarrassing. It's too much money. I don't feel right about it. It feels really uncomfortable that somebody paid me that much money for 45 minutes of work. And he looked at me with a look that I can only describe as like baffled, right? Bemused, like he's confused. And he was like, Laura, they're paying you for 25 years and 45 minutes of work. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh, and that is the difference between price and value, right? The price is the amount of money that it's going to take for me to be able to say, yes, I will go get on that plane and miss three days of being at home, whatever it is that I'm doing. The value is what I deliver when I'm there, right? So we as women very often create numbers around our services based on price. What will the market bear? What is the most amount I could ask? but not be offensive, right? The least amount that I'm willing to accept, all of that. We never price our services based on value. And what's the value? The value is how much this problem is causing your clients. How much money does this problem cost your clients? Because your solution that you bring to the table, it doesn't matter if it takes you four minutes or 45 minutes or 40 hours. That's what matters to them. Like that's what they're thinking about in terms of numbers. So and I always encourage sum, people. Yeah, it's the sum total of your life experience of everything you've done up to that moment. Right? Yeah, there's this funny story. I don't know if it's true or not. It might just be an apocryphal, you know, is this the myth. Is this the Picasso? Picasso, the, right? Yes. Right, tell he's tell like it, sitting in a restaurant. Favorite. He's sitting in a restaurant and some waitress comes over. He's like, you're Picasso. And he's like, I am. And he's, he's like, could you draw something for me? So he like scribbles something on a napkin. It takes 30 seconds, hand it to her. And he's like, that'll be $6 million. And she's like, but it took you 30 seconds. He's like, but it took me a lifetime to become Picasso. You're like, oh, no. So I'm not saying I'm Picasso. I'm not saying I'm Picasso. But what I am saying is that every one of us has taken a lifetime to get to where we are today. And what you are bringing to the table is not the time that you're spending actually working on the problem. It's all of the context and the resources and the knowledge that you have brought to bear. You're like the, the you know, price is time, but value is wisdom. Yes. Wisdom, you could charge a whole lot more money for wisdom than you can for time. 
Absolutely. Okay. Take us home with C number four. By the way, I love alliteration and your language and alliteration. I'm like, I could talk to you all day long. Ending this conversation is going to be the hardest thing I've done all day. <laughs> well, that's a good C because then we can close. <laughs> I love it. Well so done. The, the last C is control. And control really answers the question of how much personal agency do you have? over how much your work connects to your calling and how much that work contributes to your life. And again, Mm -hmm. I say work could be your paid work, could be your volunteer work, could be your family work. It's whatever it is that you're spending the productive hours of your day doing. I think control is really such an important C of continence right now, especially during the big C of COVID, because there are so many of us who are saying, when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going back to really the life I want? And so many of us have felt out of control for the last 18 months. So how do you bring more control into your life? You figure out what you're going to say yes to. You figure out what matters to you. You look at that list of motivating factors and you decide how to prioritize it for right now, for today. You know, so many times we're asked to sit down and like, right, like, what's your 10-year plan? I don't know. There have been moments during COVID where I couldn't have given you my 10 day plan. Forget about it. Forget about it. But I think, you know, when I was 21 years old, dropping out of that law school, joining that presidential campaign and happy as a clam to eat ramen and, you know, cold pizza in high school gymnasiums all over the country, I was a much different person than I am today. I had no control at all. I didn't know if they were going to send me to Little Rock or, you know, or, or, or Pacoima. I didn't have any say but I had all the calling in the world. Oh, I was so inspired by Bill Clinton and what he was doing and what he was saying. And I just, I, I changed my life, right? Completely changed my life. Did I have connection? No, I got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee, who got the coffee, right? Like I was like a peon of like, I was like the PS peon of all peons. And in terms of contribution, I wasn't getting paid anything, but was I manifesting my values on a daily basis? Hell to the yeah. Yeah. And would there have been a really interesting career trajectory? Should the guy win? Uh Uh-huh. Right. So I, I, my rubric of consonants was different. Now today, you know, my calling shifts, like, as I mentioned, it's writing this next book, it's helping people get unstuck, get out of their own way. But for the last six weeks, it's been hanging out and just kind of puttering around the kitchen. Should my teenager decide to come inside and you know, spill his guts to me, which he did a number of times. And I was glad I was there in terms of connection. I, you know, I, I will not like, there are a lot of speakers that I know who are like, Oh, you want me to talk about this? You want me to talk about that? You want to talk about the other thing? Sure. I can talk about anything. I don't, I speak in the center of my excellence. I go yeah. where I have expertise and I feel very good about that. I have to be connected to helping people get unstuck because if not, I'm on stage and I'm giving a workshop. I'm not giving a performance. I'm not giving a, you know, I'm on stage. I'm a motivational speaker. I need to motivate people, not, not educate them, right? I'm motivating them to make a change and do something. So it has to be connected. In terms of contribution, I'm a princess. I just, I, if I'm traveling across country, if I'm traveling across the world, my contract says that I want first class tickets. 
Why? Because I know that I'm 50. And if I'm, you know, in center seat in coach traveling for 15 hours, I'm going to get off the plane and I'm not going to give my client a very good performance because I'm going to everything and it's going to hurt. I'm just too old for that shit. This is super important because I think it's really easy. I know you're joking saying that you're a princess, but I feel exactly the same way and I make the same demands. And it's really important that we are not made to feel bad or guilty because it impacts how you show up. It impacts how you do your work. And it's not like, oh, pretty please, whatever. It's like, hey, if you want me and the fullness, brightness impact of me, well, then this is how you get me. Absolutely. End of story. And let's not apologize for that. I mean, my clients come to me because they saw me in an audience. Somebody in an audience uh, referred them to me. The speakers bureau was like, she's amazing. Call, you know, you should book her. And then I get there. And if I show up as 50% of myself, I mean, I'm stealing from them. Like that's just a malpractice. So in my contract, it says very clearly, Laura understands, you know, how to set up the room to get the Mm -hmm. best out of her for your audience. So don't give her a handheld mic. She flails, right? Like it literally says that. I'm the same. I'm a New York Jew raised in Miami. I talk with my hands. Like I, I, I need it. a countryman mic. I just do. I make a lot of, I'm just, I'm spastic. That's just who I am. Like, I don't want a big moat in between me and all the people. Like I will bring people up on stage. I'm active. I'm, but I also like, if you're, if you've got me in for a 45 minute spot and your events running eight minutes over, I'll ask if you want me to cut to 37 minutes and I'll do that because I'm not the show. You're the show. The client is the show. They're the star. I'm just, the spotlight who's facilitating that. So I think it's really important to understand what brings out your best and then to help the people around you who are hiring you expecting your best to get mm-hmm. your best. And so control really is for me, I'm able to, in my speaking contracts, I have a one pager that says like, here's, you know, here's where her headshots are. Here's, you know, how to, how to pre buy, you know, bulk books. Here's, you know, what she'll do to sign them ahead of time. Uh, she will, uh, I also will tell people that I, um, I'll text the event organizer when I land and I'm safely ensconced in my hotel room and happy to see you first thing in the morning, but I try not to go to events the night before for meet and greets because that taxes my energy and my voice. And I want to make sure that I'm there for you for the main show tomorrow. Frankly, it's because I'm a raging introvert and I just, it takes a ton of energy from me. I don't like it. Me too. Yes. Yes. I mean, energy suck in a big way. Yes. And I'm like, I'm more than happy to meet with your VIPs after I talk, happy to Mm. do a lunch, happy to do whatever, but I don't do it the night before because I know that this is like, I, I give a speech every single day, but these companies, they're getting their people together once a year. Like it's got to go well. And so I owe that to them. And so thinking about how you can create more control in your life in the way that you need it is really important. For some of us, we don't need a ton of control. That's okay. When you're young, it doesn't not necessarily matter. But when you're older and you've got a lot of balls in the air and they're paying you the big numbers and you know it's like you, you, you have to be able to exert control where you need it. And sometimes that's, you know, asking people to give you the, 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 the walk and talk. Sometimes it's asking to, you know, not do the thing the night before, but it's just figuring out what gives you more control and how you can get more of that control in your life. That's so beautiful. I would love to close on the idea because I think it's really important. Yet another powerful reminder, you talk about the role of failure. 
and how important it is. And I think you talk about it as it relates to control and this whole concept. Yeah. <laughs> this idea of like fake it till you make it is bullshit advice. Oh, it's bullshit. terrible advice. It's terrible advice. So to go back to that White House time, <laughs> I, you know, so, so I ended up in the White House, but fucking sheer luck, right? Sheer luck and sheer pluck. Like I just kept showing up and showing up and showing up. Yeah. I met a guy on the campaign trail who happened to become the head of volunteer affairs. So he was there on the first day, like calling people up and like assigning volunteers. So I got assigned into volunteer spots and I just kept showing up and I would go into these meetings. And I mean, I went to university of Texas, which, you know, not a bad school, go state you, but I was surrounded by Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the Sorbonne, mm. Oxford, like you name it. It was like West Point, the Air Force Academy, uh, Naval Academy, like the cream of the crop and not just the cream of the crop, but like legacy third generation yeah. cream of the crop. And I'd yeah. sit there and I was literally, literally wearing my mother's clothes. Like I was wearing like the 1980s dynasty, you know, shoulder <gasps> pads. The shoulder pads. Shoulder yes. pads. In fact, <laughs> Joe Biden decorated his Oval Office because, you know, every president redecorates the Oval Office. He decorated his Oval Office with the gold, uh, the gold drapes and the navy blue carpet that Bill Clinton had. And when they showed a photo of it on Inauguration Day, I'm like, look, kids, come here. And I showed them a photo of me in the Oval Office with Bill Clinton. I'm like, look, you recognize the drapes and the carpet. And all my kids could say was like, Mom, what the fuck are you wearing? Exactly. (laughs) I was Diane Carroll. I was Alexis Carrington. But anyway, I digress. So, um. (laughs) so, so I was there and all of these like bright young things were like sitting there in their like Talbots and their, you know, Burberry and their whatever they're wearing Brooks brothers and their like fancy briefcases. And they're just like sitting in these meetings before the meeting starts, just taking notes, furious notes. They had their New York times and their wall street journals and they were all like dog-eared and, you know, highlighted. And I'm like looking at my, you know, paper sack that I have in my Jansport backpack. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what they're doing. So I got a piece of paper out and I put the pad in front of me and I was like, they're writing stuff. They must have so many ideas. Uh, I got to go to the dry cleaner. Um, I got to get the dog room. Like I was just trying to write anything. And I was so busy trying to look like I knew what I was doing. Fake it till I make it that I missed what was actually happening around me. I missed the conversations that were happening. I missed mm. the connections that were happening. I didn't get to see what people were reading and who they talked to and where they sat and what they did because I was so worried about myself and what they were thinking about me that I didn't learn anything. And the problem with fake it till you make it is that you're so busy faking it that you don't even know, like you don't even know if you like it. So once you make it, you yeah. don't even know if you want to do it. You just know that you can have to just keep faking it. And second of all, you never actually get the skills that you need. So you're just building a house of cards. And at some point, it's all going to fall apart. And you spend your entire life worrying that you're like not good enough. I think failure is actually amazing. In my next book, I write a little bit about imposter syndrome and how there is a moment where your brain goes, you're going to die. Shelly, you're going to fail. Everyone's going to know. You're going to be outed. People are going to realize you don't belong. And we are told that that's imposter syndrome. You're an imposter because nobody around here looks like you. And it's a syndrome. Something's wrong with you. Mm. Well, you're an imposter because, and there's a couple of uh, women who wrote a great article about in in Harvard Business Review that I quote in the next book. And I, I don't remember their names off the top of my head, but they're like, just because nobody around you looks like you and the systems were built for people who don't look like you doesn't mean you're an imposter. It means the systems are wrong, right? Like there's a great quote that has been 
misattributed to Sigmund Freud for decades, which was probably just said by like a really pissed off woman, which is before you diagnose yourself with being something being wrong with you, just make sure you're not surrounded with by assholes. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes. yes. Right? You're like, oh, wait a minute. So you're so busy faking it and trying to be somebody else that you don't actually mm-hmm. learn how to do it. And then there's the syndrome. Clearly there's something wrong with you. You're the one who the thing is wrong with. And it's, it's, it's just not true. Failure is the thing that we're so afraid of. We're so worried we're going to fail and people are going to see us and they're going to spot us. And Eleanor Roosevelt has a great, great quote, which is, hard to pick because she has so many. It's like picking your favorite child. She said, we would worry much less about what other people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did. Say that again. We would worry much less about what other people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did. Nobody's thinking about you because all those other people that were sitting around that conference table trying to look really super smart, we're so worried what everybody else was thinking about them. Like Princeton was worried about Yale and Yale was worried about Harvard and Harvard was worried about Oxford. They weren't even looking at me. They were so worried about themselves. I say this to my girlfriends when they're like, does my ass look fat? I'm like, nobody is staring at your fucking ass. Yeah. You're so worried about your own ass. You're not looking at anybody else's ass. So like, clearly no one has got time for your ass. Don't worry about it. So So I talk a lot in the book and I'm like, look, failure, we're told that failure is wrong. It's terrible. It's finale. It's the end. It is the end. And everyone's going to see us, they'll spot us, they'll out us, we'll be done. But failure is not finale, it's fulcrum. It's the Mm. place from which you learn and you iterate and you innovate and you grow. And I was giving this talk right when the book first came out at Renaissance Weekend in Austin. And I was like, failure is not finale, it's fulcrum. And then I looked at stage left, the front row, and there was Commander Tim Copra of NASA. And Commander Tim Coper of NASA has gotten on not one, not two, but three spacewalks. And I was like, oh. failure is not finale, it's fulcrum. Except for you, sir. <laughs> for you, failure would most definitely be finale. But for the rest of us, if you are not oh on a spacewalk, God. if you are not tethered to the International Space Station, if there is oxygen in your lungs and blood in your veins, you will live you will recover. Oh. You will learn. You will grow. You will get better. Oh God, Laura, that's brilliant. Seriously. <laughs> well done on the improv in the and moment. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because now I tell that story on stage and I'm like, are there any astronauts in the house? And, um, but, but like, think about the lessons that you've learned. When have you gotten better in your life? Has it been yeah. because of the successes or has it been because of all the failures that then eventually led to that success? I'd argue that literally a hundred percent. And I'm pointing to my book going, yeah, that's what created this. And that's what led me to this work in the world was all the times where I had to be beat up by the universe and woken up and bitch slapped and gone, oh, okay. I get it now. Right. Right. That is the beautiful part of being human and alive and paying attention and really believing that we can live in consonants. Like, think about it. Like, think about the most interesting people you know. Mm-hmm. Are they the people who, like, graduated with straight A's and married the girl or boy of their dreams and then went off to get a job and worked there for 35 years in the gold watch? No. Hell no. They're the ones who had the left turns and the right turns and the U-turns. They're the ones who have 
stories, right? They're the ones who went on adventures. They're the ones who did crazy harebrained things and they can yeah. tell the stories about it in, in, in ways that have humor because they can laugh at themselves. Like that's, I want to, I, I said to a friend of mine, I'm like, I want to be one of those old ladies that says whatever the hell she wants, whenever the hell she wants it. And she was like, other than being older, how will that make you any different? Any different, exactly. Oh my God, you are my people. So can you, I have a quick, I have a quick question. Can you give us any little teaser on book number two? Sure. Yeah. So um, it's going to be called Wonder Hell. Okay. So Wonder Hell. What? I love the title. Okay. (gasps) So you know those moments when you're like, oh my God, my book came out. People are reading it. They're emailing me about it. They're tweeting about it. People are listening to my podcast and they're, 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 they're sending me reviews and oh my God, it's amazing. It's humbling. It's wonderful. And also I've never been so full of anxiety and dread and stress and exhaustion in my entire life. It's kind of hell. It's wonder hell. But wonder hell is that moment where the burden of your newfound potential walks itself into your psyche and goes, hey, Shelly, what you got for me? You've now wonder hell right now. Yes. You've now realized (laughs) that your book can be bigger. Your podcast can be bigger. Your life, your career, your dreams, your hopes, your everything can be bigger. If only you want to lean into it, live into it, be it like serve it. Right. And, and here's what I think. I think wonder hell, your own personal version of wonder hell is as big as your ego. And there was a moment when I was sitting on an airplane and it was like center seat coach. I, I was four in the morning. I was flying back from literally sharing a stage with Malala and Robin Roberts and oh. uh, overnight to my goddaughter's bat mitzvah. I, I couldn't miss either one of those things. So there I am on this red eye and center seat coach again, too old for that shit, but I had to do it. And I, and I was like, I am so tired right now. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing, but I'm 1200 miles from where I was and I'm 1200 miles from where I'm going. And all that I know is that I am in wonder hell. I am in this space where I I did not realize that the thing that I did could be more and I didn't realize how much I would want it. Oh, I want more of that. And I think there are moments in our life where we say, I want the wonder hell. I want all of it. I'm going to do more. And there are moments where we're like, you know what? Not right now. And so wonder hell sort of, it's, it sort of travels through an amusement park of cities. There's Doubtsville. There's, um, there's, there's, there's confusion corner. There's burnout city. There's competition junction. There's jealousy. I mean, there's all the feelings and the emotions uh-huh. that you get. And so I they're go through and They're all right I, in here right now. I'm feeling here. it. And you don't expect them. And then they hit you and you're like, is this normal? Is this not normal? Am I wrong? Should I not want this? So it really is. It's sort of like limitless helps you find success on your own terms. How do you define it for yourself? And then wonder how is like, all right, well, now that you found it and now that you realize there's more to your story than you ever expected, are you going to jump in or are you going to let it pass you by? Okay, so I thought I was having this conversation for one reason, and I am so fucking clear that I was having this conversation for an entirely different reason, and that we were meant to have this exact conversation in this moment. Thank you so much for sharing that wonder hell, because I'm in it, I'm feeling it, and it's it's just, it's giving me the spins, if I'm honest. Yes, yes. And 
I love that you just said that. And you reminded me, it's like, yeah, you're exactly where you're meant to be. And this is what happens when you decide to rise to the occasion of your calling and all the things we talked about. Absolutely. And uh, I'm smiling so hard that my cheeks hurt because it's just like, yeah, of course, of course, this is the conversation we were like the place we were meant to, yeah. to get to. And Okay, when is that coming out? And then most importantly, how can all our rebel souls find you? Because I have loved every second of this and I'm sure they have too. So please, like, where can they get more yumminess on Limitless and Wonder Hell and all the other fabulousness in your world? Well, I would have said the book's gonna come out in spring of 2022, but I decided to spend six weeks with my kids. And mm. so it's probably gonna be fall of 2022 now. And you know what? Nobody cares. It's totally um, fine. I'm so, still just as excited as excited as if you had said spring. So there you go. Focus well, and your so book one. I, I, uh, so there's a couple ways you can find me. I, I decided to do the interviews for the book as a podcast because I figured I might as well. I have to do the interviews anyway, so I might as well do them as a podcast. So I have them on video and podcast. You can. It's called Hey LGO TV. Uh, big talk because I hate small talk. And so I interviewed like 85 people, everyone from Olympic medalist to the to the to the guy who was a a, a star NCAA track and field runner until he lost both of his legs in a in a in a, in a crazy accident wow. and now has the double amputee marathon world record, right? I, like I interviewed people who did all kinds of crazy sports things. I interviewed Kara Golden, who I know was on your show also. Yes, who I love Kara. I've interviewed Whitney Johnson, who uh uh, uh talks to us about the S-curve of reinventing ourselves. Uh, Dory Clark, who has a, a, a new book uh, coming out called The Long Game. Carrie Lorenz, who I talked to you about before yeah. we started uh, uh, this about... Um, who is the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. So I talked to I talked to Jordan Harbinger about the Jordan Harbinger show. So I've yeah. talked to CEOs. I've talked to um, academics. I've talked to record uh, breakers and world record holders. Uh, and so all of those things, you can find them and you can listen to those podcasts. So that's one way you can find me. But most importantly, and specific to this conversation, if you're listening and you're like, hmm, consonants, I need to get me some of that in my life. And I don't know what I don't know how much calling, connection, contribution, and control I have or how much I need. You can take a very easy four-question quiz at, are you ready for it? My4questions.com. <laughs> it will take you literally three minutes. My4questions.com. Oh, and it will ask you one question about calling, one about connection, one about uh, contribution, and one about control. And it will give you a beautiful multi-page printout about how much you have of each of them in your life how much you decide you need of each of them in your life and specific things you can do today right now to help get yourself into consonants. Oh, I love it. We will put all of those links and the link to your TEDx talk, all the things and a link to your book, obviously in the show notes. This has been so brilliant. I feel like you're a soul sister and an old friend, and I'm so excited about the work you're doing in the world and how it just, it speaks to me. And I know this community is going to eat it up as well. So thank you for spending this time. Well, I feel like it was meant to be. I know you went to Boston College. I have to ask, you also went to Breck School. Is that in Minneapolis? It is. It is. So my son, who just started college at Rice University in Houston, right? I live in Boston. His roommate was the senior class president at Breck last year. So it's a small world. This is meant to be. 
oh my God, that's a really small world. Well, and if we're going there, I said to you when we were first connected by Pam and I found out that you're running the Boston Marathon. So go sister. And I've been following you you on the socials and I'm going to continue to cheer you on from here in Chicago. But I remember so clearly I lived my senior year on ComAv watching and supporting the Boston Marathon because we were right after Heartbreak Hill. And it's like the fucking hardest part of that marathon. And I just told you, I'm like, Laura, I'm going to be there in spirit with you, cheering you on because you're a badass. And I just love that. I know you're dealing with a lot of health issues and you are pushing through and you're setting such a beautiful example. And thank you for that. Thanks for being the inspiration that you are. Well, I appreciate it. And if any of your followers are like, this woman sounds crazy. I need to check out her socials. (laughs) My name is Laura Gassner-Odding. All my good friends call me LGO. So I'm on all the socials at Hey, LGO, H-E-Y-L-G-O. So follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and you will see all kinds of inspirational, motivational things. And also me being really sweaty after a run. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I don't know. I find it super inspiring. I'm like, damn. All right. I gotta, I gotta up my game. So yeah, we're going to put links to all of that. And thank you, Laura. Thank you for being you in the world and, uh, teaching us to be more of us in the world and in everything we do. I'm super grateful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks, Rebel Souls, for tuning in. Until next week, stay bold, brave, and badass. Ciao. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow Rebel Souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at soulbatical.com and follow me at soulbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave and badass and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?